Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 31st, 2018. On today's episode, we'll discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, we got a bunch of news to uh, try to go over in this 30-minute period, so let's just jump into it, and let's start off first with Fox who is again rebooting 24, but I guess this is going to be the Jack Bauer origin story that we don't need. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, pretty much. uh, You know, we heard back in May uh, at the Upfronts presentation for Fox that they were considering two possible options for reviving 24 in a new way. One of them was this uh, much different legal thriller idea where a female lawyer has to, like, uncover this conspiracy in a limited amount of time, presumably 24 hours, if they stick to the real-time formula of the original series. And then there was another one that they didn't detail, and that's what this one is, which is a Jack Bauer origin story that would uh, detail what the character was up to before the events of the first season of the show. Um, this it's this is so weird for a number of reasons, because first of all, like, 24, much like Die Hard, is what made Jack Bauer Jack Bauer. Like, he was a good agent before he had you know, gone out on some operations, including one that is referenced as the catalyst for what the terrorists are doing and why they kidnap his wife and daughter in the first season. Um, but in, in the, the way that Die Hard turns John McClane into John McClane, who was just a regular cop before the events of that night, uh, the whole thing with Jack Bauer is that he becomes Jack Bauer because he keeps getting berated and, you know, uh, un- more and more unhinged by these constant terrorist attacks and events that keep coming through CTU. So the fact that they're trying to turn this into a thing like Jack Ryan's shadow recruit and showing his life before he was this, you know, star CTU agent just seems a little bit ridiculous. And I'm not even sure that anyone is all that interested in a 24 following Jack Bauer when Kiefer Sutherland isn't playing Jack Bauer. Uh, You know, 24 Legacy, they tried out um, by having a whole new lead and like continuing, uh, you know, the story of CTU. But obviously it didn't work out well enough for them to do a second season. That was always meant to be a limited series. 
Um, but they also they, they also took out the real time constraint, which was the <clears throat> yeah exactly, the and that series. was yeah that was definitely a big selling point for the series because it was interesting to see how they you know were able to fit it into like a twenty four hour period, but it did also mean that there were plenty of filler episodes because people had to get from one place to another and they had to account for time. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm Fox is clearly desperate to keep twenty four alive. I don't think this is the way to do it. I would much rather them turn 24 into some kind of anthology series where that follows maybe different characters and different scenarios where the real-time uh, equation is used in a clever way. No, I, I like the idea, the other idea they have with the, the kind of uh, 24-hour lawyer uh, case drama. I feel like using – what you said is correct. Uh, using the the idea of the show and not it being about you know the action hero, Jack Bauer, would – it would – what would get me to watch another 24 series i know fox also was considering at one time uh rebooting die hard without you know bruce willis they i think boom studios came out with this die hard year one uh showing like you know the early days of john mcclain um well, they're also supposed to be making a, a die hard prequel or at least there was one in the yeah. works you yeah. know uh, so yeah so I, I don't know this sounds a bit like that to me like i i just don't know I, if I care about Jack Bauer before, um, you know. Brad, Brad, you mentioned that uh, people might not care about this uh, because it's early Jack Bauer and Kiefer Sutherland might not be playing him. If Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland were to return in like a digitally de-aged <laughs> form, would that interest you? Would that make you want to watch this? I mean, I just don't think it's possible because that kind of special effects work is very expensive. And it, like, it works no in Marvel can... movies, but Marvel yeah, movies have there, lots yeah, there's of no money. He gets... Yeah, there's no way he could star in the series and they would de-age him for every episode of the season. Like, that would just be too expensive and probably not worth it. No, I, I, I almost wish Kiefer Sutherland had a son who sounded and looked a lot like him. And then, then that would be interesting if he played young Jack Bauer or even, you know, Jack Bauer's, you know, a, a son that we didn't know he had or something like that. Yeah, but even then, I don't think the son would capture those like mannerisms, like when Jack Bauer or Keith Sutherland is you know screaming at someone, or like whenever he says "damn it." <laughs> yes, I mean I don't know. I, I just I think Fox needs to give up on this uh, rebooting Twenty Four, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. I, I'm interested in that lawyer, uh, the lawyer take on on this whole thing. Uh, but let's move on to Movie Pass because this was the big news over the weekend. And uh, Ben, you wrote like a huge article on the site explaining all the events that have happened leading up to this weekend and uh, this week. Uh, I know it's a lot to parse, but uh, could you, uh, you know, give us the Cliff Notes version for the podcast? I will. I will do my best, and I apologize to anybody who is sick of us talking about Movie Pass. But there's a lot going on here. Well, so you know what? We're we're going to be done talking about Movie Pass pretty soon. It seems. <laughs> Well, maybe. Yeah, we'll get to that at the end. So um, Movie Pass ran out of money last week. I think we already talked about that on, on the podcast. Uh, they got a $5 million loan to stay up and running. But somehow things seem to have gotten worse for them in that time. That happened like last Thursday night. And since then, it's just been <laughs> nightmare central for them. So basically, they decided to lock their subscribers out of seeing Mission Impossible Fallout in a, a traditional, you know, like uh, if you were to use the, the app in a normal way to walk, walk up, check in while you're there. Basically, you could only see the movie using the e-ticket partner, uh, theaters that that uh, partnered with MoviePass to offer e-ticketing. And that is a, a drastically smaller 
amount of theaters across the country. So uh, <laughs> MoviePass released a a statement on their website, and I've taken a couple excerpts from that. You can check this out in the article at Slash Film. But basically they said, uh, and this was late last week again, they said, as we've shared with you before, rather than raise the price of the, the subscription, we've decided to enable all of you to have the choice between high value, the ability to see up to one movie a day, at a low cost, $9.95, versus the flexibility to see whichever movie you want wherever and whenever you want to see it. In other words, you can choose to see a movie in high demand on opening weekend for a small additional surcharge or wait to see a popular movie a bit later in its theatrical run at no additional cost. So that was their statement just a couple of days ago. Uh, I mean, that statement in and of itself is sort of ridiculous because that also they also go on to say that basically the customers, they're, they're putting the burden on the customers to reach out on Twitter to movie studios and theaters in their area to try to work with MoviePass to make these things available as if it's our job as consumers to do the legwork of the company for them. So I don't really understand where they're coming from there. They also issued a statement apologizing to users for having uh, check-in problems, basically saying that all e-ticketing remained functional uh, over the weekend. Yeah, because over, uh, over the weekend, all all the movie theaters in LA, except for the one movie theater that had e-ticketing, you couldn't buy, you couldn't see any movies. Like it totally went out. Yeah. So, and and Mission Impossible Fallout uh, just came out this past weekend. Obviously, a lot of people out there who are Movie Pass subscribers wanted to go see this movie, but they couldn't. And Peter, you theorized on Twitter you were wondering how much effect that might have on the opening weekend box office. Yep. Because and, theoretically, there are over three million Movie Pass subscribers, and if each one of those wanted to go see Fallout and bring you know their significant other or a group of friends, that could you know, add up to, what did I theorize? Uh, 30, $40 million, $50 million loss for that. Yeah. Movie at the something box like that. I mean, and, that's and like the grand, you know, it, you know, that's, that's the, on the high, high end, end for yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, like I think, uh, film school rejects had an article that basically said that despite the fact that mission impossible fallout opened with the highest, uh, financial opening weekend of the series so far, it, it also means that, um, I guess it also is like the fewest people, the fewest number of actual human beings went to go see it. And I think, you know, it's hard to draw a one to one comparison with how much MoviePass subscribers uh, make up of the larger movie going audience and whether this outage or, or uh, I guess, removal of fallout from MoviePass's service or most of its services, uh, you know, whether that contributed to this. But it sort of seems like it did. So, um you know, that's one thing that's going on. Also, uh, we reached out to MoviePass to try to get some answers to this, by the way, and they, they have not responded to our request for comment. So if they do, maybe we'll we'll talk about what they say on, a, on uh, an upcoming episode of the show. But according to Business Insider, Mitch Lowe, who's the CEO of MoviePass, told employees at an all-hands meeting yesterday that the app would not make upcoming releases uh, the Meg and Christopher Robin, the next two major releases hitting theaters in the next two weeks, available to its subscribers. And he also implied that the practice of not offering tickets to major movies would continue for the foreseeable future. So this is not a one-time uh, temporary thing while they sort of scramble to recover from the events of last week. This seems like it's going to be their official policy moving forward that a lot of these major movies, unless they are willing to play ball with movie pass and whatever that, whatever capacity yeah. they decide, you know, that, that these movies meet that threshold, then they're not going to be available for movie pass subscribers to see. And that's not exactly 
uh, a vote of confidence that you want to hear if you're a subscriber. Um, I, I'm there... guessing. I'm ge- I don't know any information, but I'm guessing behind the scenes, it's it's totally what we've speculated in the past that they're hoping movie studios will, uh, you know, advertise on their platform to allow their users to go see their big movie on opening weekend. Right. Yeah, and they're they're basically like enlisting their own customer base to try to uh you know work the ground game and reach out to the studios to convince them to play ball in that way which is kind of crazy but also in in addition to all of this their stock has dropped again so helios and matheson analytics which is the parent company of movie pass the their stock dropped 60 percent yesterday and closed at 80 cents per share and i uh this article at variety says that in october of last year the share was at $32 and 90 cents and it is at 80 cents as of yesterday. And I think it's actually down to 79 cents as of today. So, uh, that's pretty awful. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, in, in addition to all of that, they have basically not been uh, providing reimbursements to any of their customers, um, because of the, or, or at least to, to several of their customers because of the outages that they've been having. And then today, uh, MoviePass announced that they are basically trying to save themselves by raising the prices. So that statement that I read from the CEO, which was, again, just issued a couple days ago about how they're not raising the prices, they say that now they are going to raise the price from $9.99 a month to $14.95 a month over the next 30 days and limit access to nearly all Hollywood blockbusters within their first two weeks of release. So Wait, wait a second, yeah. Ben. So. They're raising prices, yet giving us less yes. and expecting us to be happy about it? Yes, I believe that is that is their mentality right now. Uh, is this the end of MoviePass? So I, I speculated that I think um, – I, I don't think MoviePass is going to disappear, but I feel like it's going to revamp – its services and probably lose a huge percentage of its subscriber base in the process. Like you notice that they, for a long time there were, were hyping up how many people, how many subscribers they had. They were releasing all these press releases saying, Oh, we have 3 million people. We're hoping to hit 5 million by the end of the year. And I feel like the, the tide has turned on movie pass. And I am not surprised that they haven't mentioned how many subscribers they have recently, because I feel like a lot of people are probably are probably jumping ship already. So um, yeah. I, I'm not sure, you know, what the the internal numbers are there and if they're <laughs> dumb enough to release them to the public. <laughs> but um, I, I can't imagine that things are going well inside MoviePass HQ right now. You know, with uh, that surge pricing, I kept my MoviePass sub, uh, you know, subscription. I kept it even though I, I bought AMC A-List. But today, I officially canceled my MoviePass uh, subscription. Um, Brad, I know you're also a MoviePass subscriber. Did, did, did you already cancel it? I canceled it, but it's it's active until the middle of August. So I might go use it just to really stick it to them. <laughs> uh, but, like, uh, I don't know, here's the thing. Like, MoviePass is obviously struggling right now. But I think that if they if this their price raise and their new policies don't completely, like, wipe out their subscriber base they might still have a decent group of general audiences who will still keep the service because there are a lot of people out there who aren't like us who don't feel the need to see new releases as soon as they're out especially when it comes to blockbusters because some people don't like the crowds you know some people just would just you know don't feel an urgent need to see it right away i think i think one of the concerns i have though is maybe that we saw that or at least movie pass you know bragged about how 
they increased um, attendance for lower key movies, you know, indie movies like like Lady Bird last year and stuff like that. So I, I wonder if they're going to limit indie releases as new releases as well. And like that could be kind of detrimental to some indie projects where the first weekend uh, or two of, a, of an indie movie's release is indicative of whether the studio decides to, you know, expand to a larger market sooner than later. So if these MoviePass subscribers, you know, don't head over to AMC A-List or somewhere else and they start not seeing these kinds of indie movies like they were because they had MoviePass, that could, you know, do some uh, harm to indie productions as well. You know, even um, Keith Calder, actually, the producer of Blindspotting, even posted on Twitter like a little joke. He was like, that face when uh, MoviePass looks like it's going under as soon as your indie movie is opening in, in more theaters, uh, you know. So hmm. that's it's obviously a concern after they, you know, created a huge user base that was going to see movies more often than they were before. Uh, so, you know, it's, I don't think that they're going to die uh, immediately. They're definitely going to become a little less substantial and reliable, but I feel like they could almost be, be like this like bargain movie service where people, you know, use it once after some time has gone by, if they're not seeing movies right away. You, you know, I think this is interesting because it, it seems like everybody like turned on movie pass like pretty quickly, and I I, I do want to rewind uh, as the former official quote unquote podcast of MoviePass <laughs> and, and say that like MoviePass was a great service. Uh, maybe it wasn't run well; the customer service was never good. Uh, but I saw, and I, Brad, I think you would agree. You saw probably a lot more movies than you probably would have if you didn't have MoviePass. Um, it's a shame that all this is coming to an end. And it's also a shame that, like, even with these restrictions, I feel like if this service had launched, you know, six months ago and they had said, you know, it's $15 a month, you can't see a movie on opening weekend. And, uh, yeah, like, I feel like we would have subscribed at that point. I feel like that yeah, would think, have been. I think that's the problem is that they yeah. they promised too much too soon, didn't realize how big their business model was going to grow and how much it was going to cost to do so. And so now all they're doing is they're pissing people off who signed up, a lot of them for a year subscription, yeah. uh, for a service that now has lost a lot of the benefits that they wanted to take advantage of to begin with. And I think that's why you know, you're seeing people who are mad at MoviePass and upset about it, even though they've, they've still you know, gotten good use out of the service. It's because they've been so shady and shitty about how they deal with their customers and changing their policies. Because, like, I've been using MoviePass since it was in beta, you know, six years ago. And like, I even looked back and, and, and uh, to take a look, I've seen over 330 movies with MoviePass. And taking into account how expensive it was before they dropped to $10, basically each of those tickets has cost me, like, six bucks. So that's a great deal, considering most movie ticket prices are double that nowadays. Yeah. Um, so it's, everyone has gotten a benefit out of it. It's just a shame that MoviePass couldn't figure out how to run their business competently enough for us to continue enjoying it. Uh, I hate to, you know, keep this about MoviePass, but I'm wondering, you know, if MoviePass does go under, do you think like services like AMC A-List are going to just hike their prices up, you know, from like 20 bucks to 30 bucks or whatever, like now that they don't have to, you know, compete with a $10 a month subscription model i mean even now they're not competing they're competing with the 15 a month subscription model do you, do you think that uh this is going to be bad for consumers with less competition i don't know i think it that they they could raise prices at some point but 
I feel like AMC probably took the time to really figure out what they could do in order to make this work, and their their subscription base is growing pretty well. I think I just saw an article today that said they have like 375,000 subscribers already, or something like that. Um, so they're going pretty well, you know, and they are <clears throat> they're getting more out of it because those people that are going to see movies at AMC theaters, uh, you know, are their customers and they're getting the concession money um, and that kind of thing. So it's yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Th- that, that's the good thing that AMC has going for it is, first of all, they, they can discount the tickets. Second of all, they can track every single purchase that those people make. So they see exactly how many con- how much concessions and th- they can see the return on investment that yeah. they are getting. So, uh, yeah, um, but we should move on because we've got a lot more to go. But I, I am interested to see what happens to movie pass. Even if they go out of business, their assets will probably be sold to the company. Uh, I'd love to see someone like Fandango um would seem like the obvious one to to maybe bid for those customers and launch their own uh movie pass service but uh i don't know maybe it will just go all go down in flames we'll have to see uh but let's move on to uh topher grace who uh a few years ago i'm not even sure how many years ago five years ago i i ended up uh seeing he, he was playing around with editing and he he did a a bunch of different cuts uh, he did a cut of the Star Wars prequels into one movie, and I, I wrote wrote about that for the site. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Now he has created a two-hour cut of The Hobbit. Uh, Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so Topher Grace uh, just likes to dabble in editing. Um, he says in a, a recent discussion with IndieWire that basically for him it's it's become a way to relax. He said there's something zen about being able to sit in an editing room and kind of cut footage together says he feels like he's doing woodwork in his garage when he's doing it. And part of the reason that he dug into this uh, two-hour edit of the Hobbit trilogy is that he had just finished playing uh, Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, and that was something that just kind of stressed him out and messed with his mind a little bit, and so he just really needed to unwind. And he decided to do that by cutting together this uh, edit of the Hobbit that significantly reduces... The amount of runtime it takes to tell that story. The uh, the Hobbit trilogy, in its theatrical cut form, is 462 minutes long. Uh, it's 532 minutes if you are insane and watch the extended cuts. Um, and so Topher Grace cut a considerable amount out of that story by cutting it down to about two hours. He didn't really give away any details as to how he recut the story and streamlined it or anything like that. But he did say, obviously... Uh, it's a lot tighter. It doesn't sound like he's had a screening of this cut yet, like he did with the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Um, but then again, you know, since that was an event that was for people who were invited by Topher himself or, you know, some of his friends, people that knew him, uh, there's a chance that it did happen. And, you know, maybe just we just didn't hear about it because one of those cool Hollywood things. Um, but it also could just be that he worked on this, you know, after the movie was done and he's been busy now because he's doing the publicity circuit for black Klansmen, so maybe there's a chance that he'll he'll have some kind of thing where he gets people together to watch the cut of the movie again um the 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 problem he is he doesn't own the rights for these movies and he's i you know i've talked to him about this because he you know as an actor and someone who aspires to maybe direct and stuff like that uh he is learning a lot from this editing process and, and just learning about storytelling, editing, framing, you know, what, what shots you need. Um, and I've been lucky to be invited to a couple of those events. So if he is going to have a screening of this, and if I am invited, I will write about it for the site, but it, it does, you know, it's not going to be 
something that's released widely or even presented to the public because you know no one's ever seen that uh, Star Wars prequel uh, film that he made uh, outside of you know just uh, the group of his friends and a couple uh, people like me. Uh, but yeah, let's move on to uh, National Treasure. Uh, National Treasure Three uh, is something we've been talking about. Uh, this makes me feel old. We've been talking about it for over a decade. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, apparently uh, that's how long ago uh, Book of Shadows came out. And, uh, you know, I recently saw The Meg and got to talk to the director of The Meg, John Turtletub, who uh, directed the National Treasure movies. And, of course, I, I uh, had to ask him about National Treasure 3. I will put in the audio right here for you to listen. Every time I see you, I have to ask uh, about oh, National Treasure 3. I know. It, it, it's my job. I'm sorry. But... I need you. <laughs> I really do. I need you to make a lot of money in the stock market so you can go finance <laughs> this film. Um, I, w- I would make it tomorrow. Um, finding the right script is hard. It, yeah. it was brutal for the first two. It's still going to be brutal for the third. But I don't think Disney wants to make it. And I think they have other things they want to make more. Um, but I'm telling you, well, now they have if a we did another one... So they, well, they need content. The fact is it'll probably be made as a streaming film, which is reboot, great uh, for some people and not great for others. Yeah, they'll reboot uh, Three Ninjas. <laughs> Dude, they'd be fools not to. <laughs> I mean, I am a fan of that first National Treasure. It's it's kind of a, a guilty pleasure. It's, you know, Da Vinci Code meets Indiana Jones Light. And... Uh, you know, I was kind of hoping that they would complete this National Treasure trilogy, even as, as much as I didn't love the sequel. Uh, but it now sounds like, at least reading between the lines, him saying it will probably be made as a streaming film, to me, reads as, uh, you know, they've had discussions about that. And that also reads as, like, you know, it's probably going to be a reboot of some kind uh, without Nicolas Cage and without him involved uh, as director. Um, so I, Do you I wanna... think that's what he meant by it will be good for some people and good and maybe not good for others? Because I was wondering if he meant like, um, you know, contractually, maybe financially, uh, actors maybe get I'm not sure about the inner workings of this. And maybe you, yeah. Peter, or even Brad, you might know more than me about like the inner workings of contracts and stuff. But like maybe uh, people get more money for theatrical releases than they do for streaming. So I don't know if he's talking about like a director's fee if he were to come oh, back for, for the movie to end up on streaming or not. I don't know. I, I, I was taking that as him mean, meaning the audience uh, itself is like, you know, maybe they're they want to see Nick Cage return and maybe this they'll get another national treasure movie, but maybe it's going to be more, um, you know, I don't want to say akin to like the direct to DVD sequels that we, we got in like the nineties and two thousands. But, um, but you know, I, I don't think Nicholas Cage would star in a direct to streaming movie. I don't know. The whole world is changing, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we used to consider that as like the less than, format but now netflix you know netflix tv is the more than format it's the hbo um so maybe you know with disney you know they're they're making big budget films for their streaming service so uh, maybe maybe it would be national treasure 3 but w- we don't know um but i'm wondering you guys uh really quick um are, are you fans of the national treasure movies and 
uh, would you be up for a reboot on the streaming service, or, or do you even care for if they got Nicolas Cage back for a third film? I'm basically the same as you, Peter. So, um, I, you know, I, I sort of have a, a small soft spot for the first movie and didn't really care that much about the sequel. I, I think I saw it and just instantly forgot it. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm always down for more Nicolas Cage because he's just, uh, you know, I, I just like watching him sort of stomp through and, and create chaos in the world. Um, but uh, what, are you, what about you, Brad? Yeah, I enjoy the movies for what they are. I'm not in love with them or anything like that. Um, I, I think a reboot would be... <clears throat> I don't know, doing a disservice to the series, just because I do think Nicolas Cage is part of what makes that series a little more fun than it otherwise might be. Um, so, but, but what if it is a young Nick Cage, played by Nick Cage, and they de-age him? <laughs> uh, they got the budget. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally down, but only if he, if it's like a prepubescent Nick Cage, played by Nick Cage. <laughs> Where he's got like a higher pitched voice and everything, but he still has like the same size head and facial features. <laughs> so it's basically that Adam Sandler fake movie from yes, Funny People. <laughs> exactly. But with Nick Cage looking for treasure. Okay. So. Let's move on to uh, the Joker movie. Apparently, uh, we've, we've learned some more casting for the movie in Mark Marin. Uh, Someone who has been very vocally outspoken about hating uh, superhero movies has been cast in this movie. What What is going on here, Ben? Yeah, so this is the latest bizarre piece of casting for this uh, really weird Joker movie that is just called Joker, by the way. I think we talked about that last time. Joaquin Phoenix is playing the Joker. This is an origin film for the famous Batman villain. Uh, we know that Robert De Niro is in talks to play a talk show host in this film. And according to Variety, Mark Marin, who recently appeared in uh, the Netflix series Glow, is going to be portraying a booking agent on Robert De Niro's talk show who plays a part in booking Phoenix's character and eventually causes him to go mad and become the clown prince of crime. So uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker is like a failed stand-up comedian, sort of in the vein of uh, The Killing Joke, which is a, a famous one-shot Batman comic that, that sort of uh, depicted an origin story for the Joker. Um, it's very famous, and, and we've talked about that a lot before as well. Uh, this movie seems to be taking a page from that book as well as taking influences from um, you know, darker dramas like Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy um, and and films of that ilk. Scorsese, of course, is executive producing this movie and Todd Phillips is directing it. So um, the idea of De Niro, who starred in The King of Comedy, um, playing a talk show host is sort of like a, a weird reversal role for him. And then Mark Maron coming on board. I mean, he... I guess, to this movie's credit, Mark Maron seems like, you know, the sleazy, greasy guy who would be a perfect booking agent in a, in a fake universe that they're creating here. So, I mean, I guess it's good casting. Um, it, this movie's entire existence continues to baffle me, but I guess as long <laughs> as uh, as long as they're going for it, they might as well go for it. And it, I enjoyed what I've seen from Maron's work on Glow, um, so I haven't really seen him in too much beyond that, obviously. I mean, he was in, like, almost famous in a really small part but uh you, but, you yeah. should check out he had a show on some network called marin which is loosely based on his life oh yeah and... it was on like ifc i think right yeah ifc was it yeah was that yeah I, yeah you're right. i thought it was fx but it was ifc yeah and it was uh it was actually kind of enjoyable it was um you know him doing the podcast in his garage it, it was it was um yeah it, it's worth checking out i i actually like i really like marin's work on glow and uh this does seem like a good role for him as as weird as it sounds, uh, let's get to our last and final story. And uh, for that, I guess we got to give a spoiler warning for Mission Impossible Fallout. 
So if you haven't seen Mission Impossible Fallout and uh, don't want to know what didn't happen in the movie, then uh, <laughs> then I guess you could turn away now and uh, we'll, we'll we'll see you tomorrow. But uh, let's start with this. Uh, so some new news came out uh, telling us how uh, Mission Impossible Fallout almost took uh, Ethan down a much darker path. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, in Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, the primary plot is uh, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team trying to track down this uh, case of three plutonium cores that they lost and that are uh, going to be used to set off three nuclear devices somewhere around the world. And one of the way, or the, the one way that they uh, figure out to get it back is by completing a task for uh the, the the white widow played by vanessa shaw in the movie and that task is breaking, vanessa kirby or sorry yeah vanessa kirby my bad um and one of the uh the task is breaking solomon lane the villain from the uh previous movie out of his uh containment as he's being transferred uh much like the middle sequence uh in the dark knight um and he has to assume the identity of this villain named john lark who ends up being killed uh, in the middle of a scuffle with Ethan uh, and Henry Cable's character and uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character. So Tom Cruise has to assume this role. um, And originally, the path that they were going to take him on in the movie was going to... By the way, even you explaining this, which is not the most convoluted part of that movie, it just seems so convoluted. Um, I was actually under the impression that Henry Cavill was John Lark, but maybe that was a whole different character. I don't know. It, 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 I guess it really proves, because we all liked the movie a lot, that the plots for these films don't really matter that much. But, no, and, yeah. well, and well, I mean, in the end, Henry Cavill is revealed to be John Lark, but but during the scene, there it's assumed that John Lark <laughs> is, is is somebody else. And okay. Who, yes. Yes. Who, okay. Yeah. So. Anyway, what originally what was going to happen is, as, as we see in the movie, uh, Tom Cruise has to assume the identity of John Lark and pull this uh, heist off to uh, say, get Solomon Lane out of prison in order to trade him for the plutonium. Um, originally, he was going to have to go a little bit deeper undercover, I guess, as this villain and by, in assuming his identity and do a little bit more darker and terrible things in order to complete this job. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie wouldn't go into any specific details as to what that means, but the reason they didn't do this is because as they clung to that idea and used that as the driving part of the story, uh, it sounds like the movie became more of a psychological thriller than a typical Mission Impossible movie, and it also ended up um, being done at the expense of all the other characters not really getting a time to shine, and so the movie was just too full and too, uh, too long before they were able to do all the other things that you expect from Mission Impossible movie. So they let it go and rework things. And during the time they were working is when they came up with the uh, extended action-packed uh, England sequence in the middle of the movie. And so uh, Christopher McQuarrie wouldn't say just how far they were going to push Ethan Hunt into that dark side. Because um, uh, one of the questions was asked was whether he was going to have to, like, if he would have to kill somebody, uh, like an innocent bystander or something, and deal with the repercussions of that. But he didn't want to give anything away because he said that they had a scene that they cut from Rogue Nation that they ended up using in this movie, uh, which is Solomon Lane giving that little speech to him where he says, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it? He's like, I wonder, did you ever choose not to? And so they that was meant to be in Rogue Nation, but they cut it and used it in this movie instead. So he doesn't want to give any, way, uh, any details of what they cut from uh, 
this movie in case they decide to use it sometime in the future. What's interesting is that they actually, you actually still kind of feel remnants of that idea because there's that whole kind of uh, daydream sequence where when Tom Cruise is told what he has to do in order to get the plutonium, he envisions them pulling off this heist and he's watching all these like law enforcement officers get killed by the White Widow's team around him and then he's confronted with the possibility that he has to pull a gun on, you know, a cop and basically shoot him point blank, you know, in the face. And like, that's all in his head and like, it's him worrying about it. You really get this idea of how, you know, concerned and careful he is and uh, how he, you know, his, his mission is always to keep people safe. And like, he feels this like dedication to it and it kind of, you know, haunts him in that way to the point that he figures out a whole different way, you know, to pull off that heist without anybody getting hurt. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, also, I saw Mike Ryan had an interview with uh, McQuarrie that I think McQuarrie said that uh, Michelle Monaghan's character was originally dead in Ghost Protocol. Did you guys read yeah. about that? Yeah, apparently. Yeah, Chris McQuarrie said something about how in the part of the work he did for that movie was that um, was bringing her back into the fray. Yeah, um, I'm glad they did because this was th- that was uh, one of the things I loved about this movie was how much this was kind of a conclusion for all the sequels that had led up to this. Like it really had a kind of a conclusive story arcs for a lot of things from three, four, and five, right? So, yeah, and I just want to take this opportunity to say that I think Chris McQuarrie is like a legit straight up genius, because after reading all these interviews and and hearing him talk on a bunch of different interview podcasts over the past few days since I've seen (laughs) Fallout, it sounds totally crazy the way that he actually was able to piece together these Mission Impossible movies. And it does not feel, you know, anytime we talk about we anytime we write about a movie that has started production without a script, that's always a huge red flag, right? Like you, the script is always, almost always the most important foundational element to telling a story in movie form. Like you need a solid foundation to uh, to build everything on. But somehow Macquarie manages to get away with not doing that in these movies and, and turning out films that feel completely, um, you know, put together and, and somehow... Uh, like inevitable the way that they come together it's really like a masterful thing and I I just encourage everyone who cares about filmmaking to (laughs) try to track down a couple interviews with him where he talks about the way that he made this made this movie because it's totally nuts the way that he just like shoots certain scenes and has no clue how they're going to factor in and is able to sort of puzzle piece the whole thing together along the way and for the movie to come out as as great as it did. And same thing with Rogue Nation before it. Um, it it's really like uh, a mind-boggling thing. It's yeah. kind of funny, actually, because like, uh, we had heard about um, when Rogue Nation was happening, there were some like trouble behind the scenes where they hadn't figured out their ending yet and they, they were shooting without knowing necessarily where they were going. And there was also... Um, and I actually bit- think you feel that in the ending. That ending where they trap him in the thing, it's so anticlimactic. So, but. Well, but so, and so then also, like, them starting without a shooting script on this one, uh, it almost gives you, like, gives it, like, the same vibe that the Mission Impossible story has because there's so many times in this movie where Ethan Hunt constantly says, he's like, I'll figure it out, you know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, that's exactly what they're doing with these movies and somehow they always figure it out. 
Yeah, and and really quickly, I guess this is like the the one place where I can drop this little uh, observation because there's it's not big enough for an entire article, I don't think. But I think they've talked a lot about how they reworked Vanessa Kirby's character uh, throughout the course of production. And if you guys watch closely in the scene where uh, Ethan Hunt first meets her, she's standing on a stage, and that's where it's revealed that she's related to Max. Which Brad, you wrote an article about that, and people can can check that oh, out. We, and, we, we actually didn't write an article about that. Oh, okay. Well, uh, in any case, she's related to Max, who's the villain from. <laughs> the first movie uh and if you look in the background the people around her are like nodding their heads as if they're listening to music and it was so clear to me that when they originally shot that sequence they had her as like a lounge singer doing like a, a singing performance live right there but in the final movie as it exists she's giving this speech about this charity and all this stuff but if you look at the extras in every shot in that scene they're all reacting as if music is happening when there really isn't any and it's it's one of those things where McCory, uh, you know, was working with the actor and found the the character as the movie was going and was able to just completely change things on the fly and turn it into this incredible thing that it ended up being. But uh, it, it's and these remnants of the early versions are still visible in the in the final film. See, see this is all nuts. Like as you know, a moviegoer that watches these films, I'm you know, I'm I'm glad, I'm happy with the the end result. But I can just hearing you talk about this, and I, I've read some of the interviews. I'm imagining what it's like to be on that crew and also oh, be God, at the yeah. studio, <laughs> being like, wait, we we don't even know what he's chasing after. You know, like they're they're, they're like adding insert shots to explain the plot of the film. Yeah, it which, seems so stressful. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, we have reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. Ben, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. Brad, where can we find you? I also do the writing at SlashFilm.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Uh, and check out that stupid podcast I do called Go Flicks Yourself on iTunes and some other podcasting platforms. You can find all the stories we talked about on today's podcast on SlashFilm.com. I'll link them in the show notes. You can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. Uh, This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday. Uh, You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And we have a bunch of emails we need to get through one of these days, and we'll we'll, we'll get to it when we have uh, a slower news day. Please, please, please go to iTunes, give us a five star review, tell us, uh, tell everybody why you like this podcast, and uh, spread the word. We will see you tomorrow.